The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Today we come to Psalm 38. We've been preaching through the Psalms looking at one chapter a week. So this week we're looking at Psalm 38. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, there's one under a chair right in front of you. We're on page 467 uh, in the chair Bible. And we want to deal with Psalm 38 and its uh, meaning of why it's in the scripture today. But we also are preparing ourselves for receiving of communion, which will transpire at the end of the message. So both of those things are happening as we work through it. You'll see some of that significance right off the bat uh, in the sermon today. And it is my prayer that God will use this in your lives individually and also as a preparation uh, for the future. So Psalm 38, Joseph is going to read selected passages uh, from the Psalm, verses 1 through 4 and verses 21 to 22. Would you stand, please? O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Let's pray. Father, as we now take up your holy word, we pray that you would speak to each and every person gathered, those who are sharing and listening online. We pray, God, that you will meet us where we are, that you will prepare us for what is yet to be. And Lord, we pray that you would get our hearts prepared to come to your table today and to receive what we have been given through Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. You can be seated. So here's, here's the real direct application to Psalm 38. What do you do when you've blown it? When you've sinned, when you've done wrong. What do you do when you've blown it and the consequences are impacting every area of your life. Now, you may or may not have been there at some point in your life. You may or may not be there right now. And because of that, you could say, well, you know, the, the sermon's really not for me. What do you do when you come in contact with a friend or a loved one who's blown it and it's affecting every area of their life? I'm going to tell you what most of you do. You send them to me. If we'd stop looking at the Bible in a moment like this, in a very specific instance, and say, well, you know, that really doesn't apply to me. I don't have to pay attention. That we are ministers of reconciliation. We are, we are used by God in each other's lives and in the lives of other people. So we need to be receiving the word, whether it's personally directed to us today or not, that it is useful in our lives. So here's the main idea. Those who repent of their sins and look to the Lord for salvation will not be forsaken. That is the gospel. 
And that is where we want to find our hope and rest today is in Christ. Now, something very specific is happening in Psalm 38. The chief theological significance lies in this distinction, that sin and suffering at times are linked together. Now, there are two extremes to what I just said. There are people in this room who think and believe that all suffering is the result of sin. In other words, you believe in karma. That because somebody did something wrong, at some point in their life, they're facing the consequences in whatever form that suffering is taken. So that's extreme number one. Then there's extreme number two, because we live in a postmodern society, there's probably more of you now influenced over here in this extreme, is that there is absolutely no link between sin and suffering. How dare you put those two things together? How dare you think that sin and suffering are somehow connected? This is crucial. Up to this point in the Psalms, primarily, each time we have faced David's suffering, he has been suffering unjustly. In other words, he didn't do anything to deserve it. His enemies are mistreating him. He's he's been misrepresented and he's suffering in an unjust way and he's cried out for God's justice. But this is a unique psalm. You cannot deny that there is a link in this psalm between sin and suffering. You say, well, that's the Old Testament. You need to get linked up to the New Testament. Okay, let's hitch our wagon. Turn with me to John chapter 3. For those of you who want to dismiss the Old Testament in your life, let's make sure we see this connection in the New Testament. John chapter 5, Jesus has just healed a man at the pool of Bethesda. He sees him later in the day. I'm in verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found them in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that Jesus is saying to this man, the reason that you are suffering and sick is because of sin. So don't sin anymore. Quit living a life of sin and you won't suffer like you were. Well, then Jesus believes all suffering is a result of sin. Ah, hold on. Turn to John chapter 9. He passed by and saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So God had a different purpose in this man's suffering. So Jesus is clearly here denying that this man is suffering as a result of his sin, or let's go back to his parents since it happened from birth, or anything that had to do with his mom and dad. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is a teaching on the preparation for God's people of coming to the Lord's table, of receiving communion. In verse 27, it says, 
Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why so many are weak and ill and some of you have died. Did you hear that? This is why so many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Did he say this is why all of you are sick? Huh? No. He said this is why some of you. If we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So he's teaching a bigger principle that we're going to get into here. God disciplines us. He brings us to a point of understanding of our sin, when we need to confess it and repent of it. We'll see this in Hebrews 12. One last text before I move into Psalm 38. In Psalm 119, verse 67, the psalmist says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. Now, listen very carefully. That phrase does not tie sin to the suffering It's just saying suffering has been used in my life to put me on a pathway of righteousness because suffering causes us to look to God. So I'm going to give you two examples. Did Job's suffering happen because Job sinned? No. So the Bible gives you an entire massive book about a man who is suffering and it's not the result of his sin. Question, did David suffer because of his sin? (laughs) Yes, no. Let me ask it this way. Did David suffer every time because of his sin? No. We know there are unjust moments in his life where he shares Job. But in this moment, in Psalm 38, David is suffering because of sin. And that's why he titles this a Psalm of David for the memorial offering. He wants this to be remembered. So what does he do? Let's break this down into several parts. First, David pleads to the Lord in the midst of physical suffering and internal conviction. Now, did you notice in my outline two things? I don't want you to only focus on the physical suffering. All throughout this psalm, there's this interplay between these two sides of what's happening. There's the physical suffering, the physical anguish of David, and there is this burden of conviction and guilt. Verse 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Now just hold your place there and turn to Psalm 6, verse 1. Psalm 6, verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath identical sentence. Now I have a question. Does the Lord rebuke sin? Yes. Why? Why does God rebuke sin? I'm just going to answer it from Psalm 51. We're going to come back to this same text in just a moment. Against you and you only have I sinned. God rebukes sin because sin is against him. 
I need to come to the realization that my sin is against a holy God. He could justifiably respond to me in anger and wrath. He is holy and sin cannot exist in his presence. God cannot ignore sin. Let me repeat that sentence one more time. God cannot ignore sin. David is acknowledging that he needs the Lord's rebuke, but here's what he's asking. He's asking that that rebuke be tempered lest he be completely overwhelmed. He's acknowledging in this psalm that the hand of rebuke and the discipline that has come into his life is from the Lord. If you compare Psalm 6 and Psalm 38, which start with an identical sentence, from that verse they go in two different directions. Psalm 6 goes right down the pathway of a cry for mercy. Psalm 38 gives us insight as to how David came to understand that he needed the Lord's rebuke and discipline. Thank God for the Bible. That here it's going to give us insight as to why this is necessary. Why do we need God's rebuke? Now turn with me over again to the New Testament, to Hebrews 12. And we got to get a really crucial theological idea That means a right understanding, a right thinking about God in our mind before we proceed any further in this sermon. Hebrews 12, verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. So don't dismiss it and don't be overwhelmed by it. Why? For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the fathers of, father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplined us for our good that we may share in his holiness. You know what that means? Parents don't always get it right. Now you ought to respect what a parent's attempting to do. That's what he's saying. Parents ought to discipline their children. But parents don't always get it right. Does God always get it right? Yes. He always gets it right. He disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Now verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, here's the theological truth that you've got to get. Discipline is not the result of wrath and anger. For some of you in this room, you were disciplined by a parent only when they got mad. So you associate discipline with anger. Listen to me, mommies and daddies in this room. Don't discipline your children in your anger. Did I just tell you not to discipline your kids? No, not in any stretch of the imagination. I said don't discipline them in your anger. 
God does not discipline us as a result of wrath and anger. God disciplines us as a result of love. Now, how can I make such a statement? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. What did he send him to do? He sent him for this purpose, that on the cross, the wrath of God would be poured out on his son. To all who have trusted in Christ, Christ has satisfied the wrath of God on your behalf. He said on the cross, it is finished, done. God's wrath has been satisfied. And when we trust in Christ, we have been reconciled to God. In other words, his wrath and anger will not be poured out on us because it has been poured out on Christ. Then you go, well, why is God disciplining you? Because you're his son or daughter. He loves you. That's why he disciplines you. So suffering is a form of discipline in the school of righteousness for the purpose of producing the fruit of righteousness. The fruit of righteousness is the exact opposite of you as a Christian living in sin. He wants the fruit of righteousness in your life. So how's God going to get to this? Verse 2, for your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has come down upon me. So you got two things happening in David's life. you got physical suffering and internal conviction. The heavy hand of God. Now, every Christian up here can repeat in this room, can, uh, can give testimony to this. I certainly can. How God starts is inside. The heavy hand of God. You know you're wrong. You know he's pressing in on you. And the longer you ignore it, the more you open yourself up. And before you know it, other consequences have come into your life from the outside now, from outside of you. It's not just something inside of you. And these outward consequences are pressing on you at the same time his hand is pushing in on you. And for those who do not know Christ, Isaiah 9, 16, 13 says, the people who did not know him did not turn to him who struck them. In other words, there are people who ignore this. But his children do not. His children recognize that the arrows and the hand of God are calling them back to the Lord. Now, David's not dealing with some kind of low-level manufactured guilt here. He's at his breaking point. Verse three, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation, your righteous displeasure. There's no health in my bones because of what? So it's for those of you who want to argue and say, well, there's no way you can tie physical suffering and sin together. Well, you know, I don't have to be any form of a Bible scholar to read that line and say, this is clearly connected that his physical suffering is because in this instance of his sin. My iniquities have gone over my head. So this is like a wave has swept over him. Like a heavy burden, they're too heavy for me. In other words, he can't solve this on his own. Now you get to the physical side. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. There's some, some kind of physical ailment that's obvious 
to him and everybody because you can see it and you can smell it. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning for my sides are filled with burning and there's no soundness in my flesh. For those of you who've been a long time since you ran, do you got a stitch in your side? What he's describing here is exhaustion. I am feeble and crushed. This is physical. And then watch him turn to the internal. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Brothers and sisters, pain, physical pain, is terrible. But the anguish of your soul can be overwhelming. The stench of David's wounds is dwarfed by his sin. That is what is destroying him inside. So what does he do? What does he do in the midst of this overwhelming anguish? He proclaims his hope in the Lord in the midst of his physical suffering and internal conviction. Oh Lord, verse nine, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. John Calvin said, most people obtain no relief from their howls and complaints for they do not direct them to the Lord. So in other words, Calvin's saying, hey, we complain and we fuss and we moan, but we're not taking them where we ought to take them. We're not bringing our longing, our, our sighing from before the Lord. And listen, it's not hidden from him. He, he's in full control. He says, my heart throbs, my strength fails me. The light of my eyes is gone from me. In other words, he, he's done. He's at the end. Now watch this. It shifts. It goes from this personal, physical struggle, inner struggle, to now other people get involved. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague and my nearest kin stands far off. Uh, one of the things I learned very early on in, as a pastor is when somebody is diagnosed with an illness, and let me just use cancer as the most uh, clear thing. You know what the number one thing most cancer patients need? Now, some people's personality is a little different. You know what most cancer patients need from you? That's it. Just to touch them. Because here's what everybody's doing. Oh, oh. As if somehow if you touch the cancer patient, it might make you sick too. So here's what David's friends are doing. They're looking at his sickness and going, whoa, wait a minute. I'm not getting close to this. It's not just his friends. Do you see that? His nearest kin, his immediate family are standing far off. Then enter in his enemies again. Here they are. They see a moment. They seek my life to lay their snares. They, those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. So how's David respond to this? He says, I'm like a deaf man I do not hear. I'm like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I've become like a man who does not hear and whose mouth there are no rebukes. In other words, he is so lonely, so isolated from the world that he feels like a person who can't hear what's happening around him and like a person with the inability to speak to what's going on around him. Then that beautiful word in verse 15, but, but, for you, O Lord, do I wait. For you, O Lord, do I hope. It is you, O Lord, who will answer. So he's rejecting despair. Has God answered him yet? No. But he knows he will. 
For I've said, only let them not rejoice over me who boasts against me when my foot slips. So back to Psalm 37, verse 34. Wait for the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. He will look on you when the wicked are cut off. So God responds to the need of his children. Here's when he does, when we are utterly helpless. When we reject believing, God helps those who who help themselves. We have to reject that. It's not who God helps. God helps the desperate. How desperate is David? He's this desperate that he confesses and repents of his sin before the Lord in response to the physical suffering and internal conviction. For I am ready to fall. My pain is ever before me. So this, he's acknowledging the connection with his suffering and sin. And then he says in verse 18, I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. He does not say, I am sorry that I sinned. He says, I am sorry for my sin. What's the difference? One only wants the pain to end. The other recognizes who he sinned against. Back to Psalm 51. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. It's right in front of me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may justify, be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That God is right in what he is doing. Now confession is not the end. We must confess our sin before the Lord. We must be repentant of our sin. But David then concludes the psalm by pleading to the Lord for help and salvation. My foes are vigorous. They are mighty. Many of those who hate me wrongfully, those who render me evil for good, accuse me because I follow after good. In other words, even in the midst of David's sin and the consequences of his sin, he's saying, what these people are doing to me, my foes, it's not right. I'm coming before you acknowledging this and they're still treating me wrong. Verse 21, do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God, be not far from me, make haste to me, O Lord, my salvation. Okay, let's be good students of the Bible here for a moment. He uses three different words for God. He uses Yahweh, Jehovah, and Adonai. They all mean something distinct. We're talking about the same God. It just means something distinct. You pick it up in the language he surrounds when he calls out. Do not forsake me, Yahweh. Yahweh is the word for the covenant-keeping God, Genesis chapter 12, who makes himself known to Abraham. The God who promises to keep his covenant with his people. Now, we know this of Yahweh His steadfast love, what? So I have a question. Will Yahweh forsake his people? No. You say, well, why does David ask for it? David is comforting. He's preaching to himself as he prays. Even though he feels like in his heart that God's forgotten him, he knows he's Yahweh. In other words, he's not going to forsake him. Do not forsake me, O Lord. 
Then he shifts. Oh my God. Jehovah is my God. My God. Be not far from me. This God is a personal God. He he has called us into personal relationship with him. And what David is saying is he's now felt a distance because of his sin and he's calling out to his God, the the God of salvation, be near to me. Make haste to help me. And then he says, oh, Adonai, my salvation, my master, my sovereign, save me. You are my savior. You are my God. You are sovereign over my life. Now, now, hear me on this. Is there any resolution in this psalm? No. Now, is there resolution for David? We have the rest of the Bible. Yes. But this psalm ends with no resolution. Why? Why? Because God may continue in his sovereign hand for a period of time. And in that, we are crying out to him, like Psalm 40. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. I've talked and counseled with you, whoever you are. We've had the conversation before many, many times. Hardships in your life. It's been going on and on and on and on. And the conversation goes something like this. I'm not that bad. I'm really not that bad. I don't think I deserve this. In other words, you know, I've been a good person most of my life and I'm pretty special and God owes me. That theological position is rampant everywhere. That's why people are so, quote, mad at God. Why do you call out to God to save you? Here's why. Because you recognize He's God. You say, I don't get it. You recognize that he is gracious and that God saves those who do not deserve it. Does David have any leg to stand on to come to God right now? No. His only hope is who God is. The hope of this psalm is in the character of God. It is the character of God that rebukes sin. And it is the character of who God is that saves. So what do I need to do with this psalm? I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 1. Here's my simplicity. I need to confess my sin and trust in Christ. 
For the people who've come into this room who are not Christians, the cry for you needs to be a cry for salvation. That you have never placed your hope and trust in Christ alone. And what Christ has done, which I'm going to be very clear with in just a moment. For the believer, you need to confess your sin as a response to the gracious discipline that is the result of God's grace and mercy in Christ. In 1 John 1, it says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, there's been some misinterpretation, I believe, of 1 John 1. Who is the truth in? Christians. So who's he talking about here? Christians. If we say we have no sins, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why do people say, well, God's already forgiven me. I don't need to confess my sin. Well, my wife's already forgiven me. Praise God, she's got a spirit of forgiveness or we'd be in trouble. But I still, when I sin against my wife, need to seek her forgiveness. I need to confess my sin to her. That's just a microcosm of a relationship against a holy God when I've sinned against him. I'm not presupposing on him. Yes, I'm forgiven in Christ, but I come to him in confession of my sin. If I say I have not sinned, you know what I do? Verse 10, I make God a liar. And if I say I have not sinned, it's proof of this. The word, his word's not in me. You say, well, I'm on the other extreme. You have no idea what I've done. How could God forgive me? You're right. I don't know what you've done, and I'm going to be straight with you. I don't want to know the details of what you've done. God knows every bit of it. He knows more detail than you are fully aware of. Christ came for your sin and mine. Now let's go back to this psalm. There's two, there's two overwhelming things that David is experiencing. Suffering and guilt. On the cross, Jesus Christ, the sinless Savior, experienced suffering that he did not deserve and guilt was laid on him that was not his own. Verse 21. Do not, what? Forsake me. Let's go to the cross for a minute. Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Lost and saved, Christian and non-Christian, you hear me. Jesus Christ was forsaken by God the Father for you. For you. Now, he said also, tetelestai. These, both these words are translated in the English Bible for us. 
That one is paid in full. It's finished. It's done. You're, you're, you're not in danger as a Christian of being forsaken of God. Now, who's in danger? The person who rejects Christ. Christ gave himself for you. You're the sinner. I'm the sinner. Christ is sinless. Here's the exchange. This was the great exchange on the cross. Christ took our sin. The sinless one took our sin. Who's the unrighteous one in this equation? Us. Here's, here's what we get in exchange. The righteousness of God. How can this be? This is the message of the gospel. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.